0: God chose you first. God chose you first. And I think that's really scary for most of us. Let me give you an example. After Jennifer and I had been dating for a very brief period of time, I knew that that was it. What I didn't know was that, previous to that, so this was, say, January of a given year, what I didn't know was that in December of the previous year, I had been the assisting minister for the big Christmas festival that our college did, and we did this huge worship service, and I was the assisting minister, and Jennifer was sitting next to her dad, and she elbows him when I got up and said, You see him? I'm going to marry him. We had not dated. We had met, but we had not dated. She chose me first. <laughs> I remind her of that all the time. Right? But it's kind of scary, isn't it? Like that that, that someone that someone would choose you first, would would have that kind of Attention, love, desire. Now, I'm not saying that human relationships are are the same as as the God relationship. But just to um, the force of that, that someone might choose you first and before you always, I think is really scary for that. And when we come into contact with that kind of love, with that kind of care, a love and a care that won't let us go, I think it scares us a little. Because most of us, and I take this, I'm able to say most of us because I've read the reports, I've seen the psychological evaluations of all of you. No, just kidding. (laughs) But, you know, that, that most of us, most of us, live with a, with, with a bit of an imposter syndrome. Meaning, if people really knew me, they wouldn't like me. If people really understood, you know, how broken I was or how depressed I am or how anxious I am or, or how stupid I am or whatever, whatever those things that go on in our heads, that we have those going on all the time. And so to have someone who, who completely loves us and cares for us, who chooses us first, can be really off-putting. Because it's like, that doesn't, this do not have to, don't have to prove something. Don't have to show you how great I am. I mean, that's the way the, that's the way our world is, especially today, I think. Especially today. I mean, we're asked to create Literally, movies of our lives and put them out there for other people to see, and all the technology helps us do that. Meaning, if you take pictures with your phone, if you if you have it connected to Google Photos or Amazon Photos or to some other photos thing, it'll make a movie of it for you, so that you can more easily post it on your social media stuff. Now, I know some of you aren't into all that. But I want you to just think about that for a moment. What is it like if, if you felt like you had to be producing your own movie of your life all the time? What, is that, what does that bring up in you? Well, I want to make sure that I've got my makeup figured out. And I want to make sure that I'm getting the best light and I'm holding a camera at the right way and I'm doing all that because that's what everybody else is doing. And I want to make sure that I'm using the right filter so that all my blemishes don't show, you know. so that the fact that I've had a cold for three weeks and my nose is all red doesn't you know, show up because God forbid that somebody would know I was sick because my life is perfect. We're asked to make a movie of our lives and so this brings up, I think, also because we're watching the other movies of other people's lives and their movies are much better than ours. Well, I'll just speak for myself. Your movies are much better than mine. Your life looks amazing. And especially the farther I am away from you, the less I know you, the better you look. Because I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what's, what's behind the background. I don't know about the brokenness or the cancer or the addiction or, or the, you know, the child that's struggling. I don't know. I don't, we don't know all those things. But we're asked to create this movie of our life and so then, when we come up to a love, a care, that chooses us first and won't let us go, it's a little scary. Now, Isaiah, in, in this passage that we read... You know, this, this whole passage it gets located in a certain place in time, which is interesting. In the, in, the, in the year that King Uzziah died, you can look up when that was and, and begin to, to see about the timing of what was going on in Israel. But, but what happens is, is Isaiah has this real encounter or vision of God. And the Israelites believe that if you saw God vaporized, boom, done. It was over. God was so holy God was so holy, and that as a human being, you could not even be in the presence of that. If you looked upon the face of God, you would just be vaporized. And so here he is, he's having this vision, he's in the temple. God is there on God's high and mighty throne, the hem of God's robe is filling the place, the seraphs are, are there flying around, and they're singing, and the... And the And the pillars are shaking, and there's smoke in the room. Like I said to the kids, like, this does not engender any confidence for me. Like, I know I'm about to get vaporized. And Isaiah then comes comes in the presence of this absolute holiness, this absolute embodiment, really, of love and grace as well as power. And what is the first word out of his mouth? Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And guess what? I live among a generation of unclean lips. We are so in trouble. Doesn't resemble anything about like right now, does it? Hmm. But God knows something else. Because you see, God chose Isaiah first be a prophet, to bring a message. And so there's this really awesome and scary imagery in that scripture. And I really, I I didn't even run it by the elders because I knew they were going to say no. I really wanted to have like a barbecue pit up here, and I wanted to have it as red hot as possible, and I wanted to have a pair of big tongs, and I wanted to bring it out and just show you that. Like, because that's what happens. One of the seraphs goes and gets a live coal out of, the, out of the, you know, the fire that's burning there and comes and goes, puts it right on Isaiah's lips. That's the imagery. That's the metaphor. And then they say, well, guess what? You've been made clean. All your sin has been burnt out of you. It's gone. It's wiped away. And what's so interesting here is this immediate change in Isaiah, this immediate change, because then God says, well, well, who shall I send and who will go for me? And what, is, what does Isaiah say? Here I am, send me, exclamation point. In the scripture. Now, I don't know if that's in the original. I don't know if in the Hebrew you get exclamation points or not. But that's how they've—that's how we've done it when we translate it in English. But exclamation point. So it's not like, uh, "Here I am, send me." It's "Here I am, send me." Like this—this this complete. 180. This complete turnaround is because he meets up with God's love and grace, and is, and is so scared of that because God's going to know who Isaiah is to his very core—a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips—and yet God says, "Whatever, we're going to. I'm going to cleanse you of your sin. I'm going to set you free to do this thing that I'm asking you to do." And then Isaiah is set apart consecrated, to go and do it. It's interesting how similar this story is in some ways to, to the one with Jesus in the boat and teaching off the Sea of Galilee. Um, we, we got to be um, in, in the traditional place where, where this supposedly happened, right? I mean, again, most things in Israel are somebody back, in the, back during the Crusades showed up and went, that's where Jesus did this. And three other people said, yeah, I think so. And that, that's how it became that place. And then generally they built, a, they, they, they built a cathedral there or some sort of church there to, to, to make the monument. Now, they could be absolutely right. Every, every one of those things could have happened right in those places. But, you know, archaeologists are a little skeptical. Even religious scholars are a little skeptical that, that, about that. But anyway, just so you know. So we're at this place. And it's, I mean, again, it's just this little rocky sort of lakeshore you know, and the boats that they used were not magnificent at all. They were just basically almost like Native American looking sort of carved out of trees, canoes almost, though they were built much differently than that. But that's what I want your image to be is just a big canoe. And so they've been out fishing all night. Jesus is getting somewhere now, and there's all these people there, and he's having trouble teaching them. So he's like, hey, I'm going to get away from them so I can, I can get away a little bit, and then I can teach them from the boat, and they can all see me, because of course, um, you know, naturally the lakeshore sort of ramps up like a, like a theater. So Jesus is down here, and they're, they're looking down at him. So, so he teaches, and Peter's out there with him, we presume, because um, he asks him to take it's his boat. They go out there, he teaches, and then he says, okay, well, go ahead, let's go out and go fishing again. And Peter's like, what in the world? I mean, if anything, Jesus is maybe a carpenter. What does he know about fish and fishing? And they've been out all night, but he's like, okay, but if you say so. So clearly, it feels like in this passage, unlike um, Matthew and, and Mark, that, that Simon Peter has some knowledge of Jesus. So they're like, okay, well, if you say so, we'll go do it. Probably going, yeah, right, whatever. This is going to be a complete debacle. They go out and they, they haul in so many fish, they have to get the other boats to come. They get so many fish in the boats that they're beginning to sink. And for whatever reason, that, that cues Simon to be like, there's something else going on here. And what does he say? Yippee, more fish. No, he says, get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. When we come into contact with with that that amazing, almost pure, unlimited love and grace of God, often our first reaction is not, yeah, I want more of that. It is, whoa, whoa. Really? You could, you, you, there's no way you could love me like that because I'm broken. I'm broken. And in this passage, there is no, there's no ritual of cleansing or whatever, but he just says, listen, listen, Simon, you know, this is, your life is over, basically. Because when you get chosen by this kind of love, when it chooses you first, your life is never going to be the same. When you, when you finally realize it, and you embrace it back, your life is over the way that you knew it because you can never operate the same way again. Just like after the first time that Jennifer and I went out on a real date and we were dancing afterwards and I looked in her eyes and I was like, I'm done. Her life is never going to be the same again. When we come into contact with that kind of love and grace. And we embrace it back, our lives can never be the same. And it happens with Isaiah, and it happens with Simon Peter here, and of course James and John who have the who have the best nickname ever. They're actually called the sons of thunder as well as the sons of Zebedee. But they they encounter something And it says, they immediately left everything and followed him. And maybe that feels a little like hyperbole to us. But sometimes I wonder for myself if I have not necessarily embraced that pure love and grace of God. Because if I had, what would that cause me to do? How would that cause me to act? How would that cause me to love? How would that cause me to give? How would that cause me to change? Because, you know, we get used to our brokenness. We get used to our sinful lips, our unclean hearts, and we sort of just get used to them. But there's something more than that. We do not have to be ashamed about any of that because God chose you first. God set you apart. God is always calling you into a relationship with God that is holy, a life of discipleship that's going to take everything you've got, it's going to make you uncomfortable. It's going to make you question yourself. It's going to put you in places that you never thought you would be before. And yet you're going to be right in the place where God wants you. When we hear and encounter that love of God, and when we embrace it back, our lives will never be the same. And God chose us first. And then, in Christ, he set us completely free from all of that brokenness, from all of the shame, from all the guilt, from all the fear. In Christ, we've been set free. God says, I know you. Don't. Be afraid. Amen.